This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast with Cornell Schreiber, session number 11. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to session 11 of the Build Wealth Canada podcast. And today, we're going to learn all about how to invest if you're living here in Canada. Now, for all you non-Canadian listeners out there, we're also going to cover some best practices when it comes to investing. So you can definitely still start applying those best practices in whatever country you may be living in right now. Now, to make this series beneficial to everyone, we're going to start off with answering some beginner-level questions intended for those who are just starting out when it comes to investing. And then as the interview goes on, we're going to progress into more and more advanced-level questions so that even if you're already investing, you'll still get a lot out of the show by learning some of the best practices and basically how to optimize your portfolio and save money by eliminating some unnecessary fees that you might be paying right now. All right, so to help me with this, I'm really excited to have Dr. John Robertson on the show. And John is an author of the book called The Value of Simple, where he shows step-by-step how Canadians can get started in investing. And for all our listeners out there who are already investing, John shows you how to set everything up so that you can drastically cut the fees that you might be paying on your investments, which can literally add up to being well over $100,000 over your lifetime. Now, instead of paying that six-figure sum, you could be investing it so that you can retire early, for example. So this is definitely something worth listening to if you're already an existing investor as well. I can definitely also vouch for John and his teachings. What he suggests is actually the way that I personally invest as well after researching the subject somewhat obsessively as my wife would attest to. Um, so definitely uh, you know, what he's saying is, is something I encourage. I, I, I feel these are the best practices from all the research I've personally done myself even before his book came out. Um, so definitely, definitely worth listening to John when it comes to investing. Now, just to give you a bit more background on John, he is a PhD scientist. He's a writer. He's an investor and he teaches newbie investors how they can actually start investing as well. He also has won multiple awards. He's been blogging in the Canadian personal finance community for over seven years. He has a blog called Blessed by the Potato and he even has his own investment service where he helps investors move away from relying on commission sales staff to, uh, to planning and investing on their own. So you can get all this information in the show notes at buildwealthcanada.com ca slash 11 and john has also actually agreed to give away a few copies of his book to build wealth canada listeners so to be entered into the draw all you have to do is go to buildwealthcanada.ca sign up for the newsletter and when you sign up you'll automatically receive an email from me plus a little gift as well just for joining and once you get that email from me just hit reply and send me a question that you'd like answered on a future episode and when you do this, you'll automatically be entered into the draw to receive John's book for free. So the question that you ask me can be about anything. It can be about investing, personal finance, real estate, earning money on the side, really anything personal finance related that you'd like to have answered on a future episode. All right, so go to buildwealthcanada.ca right now, sign up for free, and send me one question you'd like answered to be automatically entered into the draw to receive John's book for free. So hit pause, do that right now. And when you're done, let's get into the show. All right, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. I just want to start off to see if you could tell us your story and tell us about your book and what got you started to want to write this book. So basically it goes back to grad school when I was starting to invest. 
uh, on my own and starting to write about it on my blog. And people would come up to me and ask, like, how can I get started investing? What do I need to know? Uh, how do I actually do some of the stuff that you're talking about? And I point them to books, to articles, uh, to other blogs on the internet and say, you know, here's where you go. Here's where you learn about this stuff and how to do it. And I follow up with them weeks or months later and they wouldn't have done any of it. And mm -hmm. it's because there's this gap there where the books, the articles that are out there, they're not talking about the actual implementation steps. So some of the great books out there on index investing are first off very US centric because that's a bigger audience and that's exactly. where a lot of these authors are based. And then also it's like really beating people about the head about why index investing is the way to go. Uh, assuming that you're starting off as someone who's already in the active investing camp. So you know how investing works. You just need to know about this particular strategy. And people are going, yeah, I'm, you know, by chapter two, I was convinced index investing is great. I want to do it. And they didn't know how, like there wasn't anything about what particular funds or ETFs you'd have to buy do it. There wasn't any information about how you actually go about buying all that stuff if you're just starting off as a newbie investor. So for a lot of these investors, they don't need that, you know, prosthetizing, converting them to index investing. They just need some workable strategy that they can follow and then, uh, go out and follow their plan. So that's what I really tried to do with the book was to make something practical, sort of like a quick start guide for these uh, new investors so that they could get off with a good plan, not necessarily a perfect one, but a good plan and just get going like right away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although for sure, I, I definitely found that uh, with the books as well. So when I first started reading them, yeah, a lot of really good US ones. And yeah, like you said, chapter two, I'm already, okay, yes, ETFs are the way to go, broad market indexes, let's let's do it, right? And then they sort of keep saying, okay, and here's 10 more reasons why this is a good idea, and, and, which is interesting, and it's, it's entertainment, entertaining reading, but I can, and, but like you said, because they are US based, and then, you know, if they give you some some tickers, they're, they're basically um, US ETFs, and now you're kind of, as a Canadian, it's a little bit, okay, well, is there a Canadian version? What is it? What's the process? It, it gets... It, so for sure, I can definitely relate uh, to that. And I mean, when I learned it was a lot, just kind of uh, reading, trying to find books on the subject and reading uh, blogs and trying to kind of piece it all together. So I'm really glad how in your book, you kind of say, okay, currently, right now, uh, in present time, here are the offerings for someone that is Canadian and would like to start investing in ETFs. And so I really think that that really sets you apart for sure. Thanks. Yeah. And, and that's actually a big goal of the book was that I'd have multiple ways to do it and really clear explanations as to why you'd want to pick one over the other over another. So what's the trade off of going, you know, one route versus another, because a lot of people get confused on that point. It's like, well, you're presenting, here's one option, here's another option. And, you know, if they see that in an article, it's like, well, why would I ever choose the one that costs more? If, you know, if I can get ETFs and commission free through Quest Trade. Why would I ever go with the other options that you listed in this article about how to become an index investor? And so I wanted to you know, lay out that it's because these options are a little simpler, a little easier to implement, and there's that little trade-off there. And same thing with why you'd want to choose one uh, index over another, what you'd want your asset allocation to be. Uh, I want to start with either a good default for people so that they know if I don't have a good basis for making this decision, what's a quick rule of thumb to get me with something good enough to start with? And what criteria do I need to think about if I want to move from one kind of allocation, one kind of fund, one kind of uh, bucket, whether I'm talking about TFSAs or RSPs versus another, so that they had some kind of basis for making all these decisions. And I, I didn't want people to be out twisting in the wind after they read the book. <laughs> That's really what it came down to. For sure. And there's also sort of that fear I find too, that if you know you read a blog article here and, and learn some, get some 
get get a good article in and you kind of feel okay i'm getting the hang of this but then you always wonder okay well that was just an article how what am what do i not know right and at that point you're you know you're playing with a lot of money at this point so it's not something where you want to read a an article for five minutes and then now you're next thing you know you're investing tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> right so so i like how in your case you said okay well here are the three different sort of options for you and and this is why you should pick this one but you know if you have if you fit this criteria or that criteria and and now we sort of uh, the the reader is just a lot more informed um, about all the different options to them and they can feel confident enough to actually execute which I, I imagine is sort of the number one problem for a lot of Canadians it's not the lack of information it's just how do you actually go and execute and not mess it up? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And yeah. In many cases, more information does not help with execution. It just makes it more confusing, more things oh, to try sure. to hold in your mind and evaluate. Uh, and also a lot of the stuff is aimed to be general. So they might talk about how to buy an ETF in general and then say, you can buy it at any Canadian broker. And I wanted to say, well, you know, we got to be a little bit more specific because every broker interface is a bit different and even that can be a barrier to people. So I wanted to say, right. if you're in Quest Trade, this is exactly what it looks like. If you're in TD, this is exactly what it looks like. Now you've got two examples you can generalize to the others and any you can buy ETFs at any of them, but I chose to focus particularly on Quest Trade because it is that little bit cheaper with the uh, free to buy ETFs. And then also with the practicality stuff, uh, I've read a lot of books and a lot of articles about what should be in a good financial plan without actually ever seeing someone's financial plan. So I included my financial plan. It's just over two pages. Carl Richards is out with a book just uh, this month called The One Page Financial Plan. So maybe I need to read that and revise mine down to a page. But, you know, it's an example. <laughs> I thought yours was good. good. I thought yours was good. I, would, <laughs> I, I, read, I read his book. He was actually on the show very recently as well. Yeah, I saw uh, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I think your, yours, was, yours was really good in the book. I like the example you used. Yeah, and it's right there that, you know, here's what I'm putting into it and I'm putting in explanations to myself for the future because why do I have this financial plan? It's because in five years I'm going to forget why I chose what I did and I won't know how to stick to my plan because everyone talks about sticking to your plan, but if it's not written down, then you're not going to. And if you don't write down why you're doing what you're doing today in 2015, then when 2020 comes around and you reevaluate everything, you might say, oh, that's really stupid when I was, you know, 30 and wrote, did this. Now I'm much wiser at 35 and I'll do this completely other thing. And mm -hmm. when it's actually fresh in your head now in 2015, when you're creating that plan. So you want to take those notes down. Yeah. Especially if you, you start investing, especially if you automate it through your work, for example, and then you, you sort of learn all this, you automate everything and then you kind of forget about it. Just everything runs an autopilot. And then all of a sudden there's a market crash two years yes. from now. And then now you're, you know, freaking out. What's going on? What should I do? And, and the emotions start taking over. It's nice to have that sort of um, that piece of paper that you that you actually created back when you where this was all fresh and when all this made sense to read it over and say, OK, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I shouldn't be selling right now, right? And yeah. so I, I think that's also another another thing that that's pretty valuable. Um, John, um, I just noticed. So we're already talking about ETFs, and and we're I, I invest in ETFs as well. Uh, but there are some beginner investors or, or some individuals who are just looking to get started who might not even know what an ETF is, actually. I just realized that. So maybe sure. <laughs> maybe instead of us just kind of uh, uh, before we talk more about it, can you maybe define uh, what an ETF actually is and uh, and really why why this is something that both you and I are big fans of, basically. Sure. So I'll actually start by going two steps back. So uh, you want to be able to invest your money in things that are going to give you returns. Uh, that's basically what it comes down to. Investing is you're 
putting money into something, buying some particular thing, a share of a business, uh, lending money to a business, lending money to the government, lending money to the bank, something that's going to give you return, whether that's interest on lending money out or income from that part ownership of a business increasing in value. And you can do that either by going out and directly investing in all of those. So you can go out and you can buy shares, which is part ownership of any one of the companies that are out there and publicly traded. You know, you can go and buy shares in Tim Hortons and Coca-Cola and Loblaws, whatever is around you. And even companies that you've never heard of that work in the back end of making the economy happen, mining things out of the ground and producing little widgets that go into other devices and whatnot. Uh, and... That can be a real challenge to go out and identify all these companies, figure out which ones are going to be successful and buy little pieces of their ownership. So what you can do is you can go to a mutual fund, which is where a larger company, an investment company, will handle all that for you. They'll buy a big collection of companies for you. They'll buy a big collection of company debt for you. They'll let you invest with the government and a number of government bonds for you. And they'll roll all that together into what's called the mutual fund. So a whole bunch of investors tiny slivers of all these different companies. That gets you diversification, which is a really important term, really important concept where you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. I'm sure you've heard that expression before. And that's what diversification really comes down to. So ETFs are like the next evolution of mutual funds. It's where if you have a mutual fund, you can go to your bank, you can go to your mutual fund dealer and buy it directly from them. And if you want to sell, you sell it back directly to them. Now, with an ETF, you can not only buy it directly from the fund company, you can buy it from all the other investors that already own some through the stock exchange. And the advantage of ETFs in particular is that they've set themselves up to be really, really low cost because there's a cost to putting all this stuff together, to managing these funds, to you know sending out all your tax documents at the end of the year to all the thousands of investors in the fund. So the ETFs have set themselves up to be the lowest cost options that are out there. So you can buy directly... Uh, from the stock exchange, from other uh, individuals or from the fund companies themselves, these ETFs, which will hold all of these stocks. And the ones that we want to focus on are the broad market indexes, because these are the most widely diversified and with the lowest fees possible. And of course, the fees come out of your returns. So you want to be minimizing those fees, unless you're going to get value for those fees. And one of the cases I try to make in the book is that if you're paying fees for someone to pick individual stocks for you, that's where you're not going to be getting value. So if you're paying fees to get advice, you may or may not be getting value. And unfortunately, it's a little bit less likely uh, from a mutual fund company that, or a big bank where if you're sitting down and paying these fees, you're actually going to get value for advice. So one of the things that you can do is minimize those fees by using ETFs and then pay for the advice you need separately. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks for that. I like how you took us through the sort of the progression because I know when I was still back in high school and I thought of investing, the thought was, okay, so I have to buy companies and everyone's trying to pick sort of the next winner and, you know, you're betting on a company, right? And then eventually yeah. you, you get a bit more educated and you learn, okay, well, you don't have to start reading financial statements of companies, uh, you know, to learn which one is undervalued and invest. I mean, you can do that, but there's also this mutual fund option, right? 
And so what makes it a lot easier um, to do when you don't have to read all these statements as much. But then, yeah, but then in Canada, we have some of the highest uh, management fees in all of the world. And so that becomes a problem now. And and the fact that these actively managed funds tend to not actually beat the market uh, when you consider the, the fees that they're charging. Um, so then, yeah, like the next sort of evolution uh, is basically getting these broad market um, ETFs, uh, essentially get, get, uh, buying the indexes. Um, so for, for sure, yeah, that's that's great. I'm glad you you explained that. <laughs> I don't. I was afraid I'm getting going into this uh, interview for an hour, and then <laughs> someone, you know, some listeners wondering, well, what is an ETF? They've been talking about this thing for an hour. <laughs> so no. So thanks for thanks for clearing that up. Um, now, it, back still to talking about sort of the indiv- uh, We'll get to the more sort of advanced questions a sure. bit later um, that are more geared towards individuals who have already been investing for a while and are maybe looking for ways to optimize a bit. Um, but let, let's stick still a little bit with the, the beginner level investor. What are some common mistakes that you see beginner investors make when they're first starting out? Well, the first mistake is not starting out soon enough. A lot of people think that you need to be wealthy already to start investing, that you know, I need to have $50,000 before I even talk to someone about investing or before I even pick up a book to learn about it. And that's not really the case. You can start as soon as you have a couple hundred dollars in your savings account that you know you can commit to the long term. And that's actually a great time to start because you'll start getting used to the market gyrations, this up and down that you'll experience in the stock market. So you can build that sort of emotional barrier and calluses to the uh, risks that will come with investing that you can't avoid. Uh, so that's that's a big one is just waiting too long to start and missing out on a lot of time to start compounding, to start thinking about it, to have it basically built into the fabric of their life. And saving for retirement is all those subway ads and uh, flyers and books and everything that you've heard of is easier if you start earlier because of the power of compounding and the power of time working for you. Uh, Another part is comparing themselves to others and getting discouraged, whether it's looking at others' returns, you know, somebody happened to get lucky in a penny stock and doubled their money, uh, then you start to think, well, maybe I should be investing in penny stocks. Maybe I should buy a pre-construction condo. Maybe I should. uh, uh, This is not you know, anecdotes based on what your friends and colleagues and people on the internet are doing is not a great way to try to pull out a uh, investment plan for the next 60 years for yourself if you're a young investor. Um, And same thing, trying to be too smart, trying to time the markets or be an active investor. A lot of people don't have the skill for that. They don't have the patience and they don't have the uh, abilities to do it. So you shouldn't even try. Just go with a more passive strategy. It's going to give you more time to live life and do the things you like rather than invest, and you're probably going to come out better in the end too. Um, Another thing with young investors is getting started with houses and condos too early because they're afraid of the stock market. Like that's a big thing is fear of the stock market. We just lived through in 2008, 2009, a massive worldwide crash in markets that has recovered now. Took a couple years, but it came back. But people are still afraid. They're like, oh, markets could go up at any minute. Uh, They're afraid of the stories that they hear in the news, like high-frequency trading. It's like, well, yes, high-frequency trading exists, but we've still managed to get pretty decent returns even with that happening in the background. That's something for the advanced people to worry about and for you and I as kind of retail investors, as they call it, average people just trying to put their money away somewhere, we don't really need to worry about high-frequency investing. Let the uh, securities regulators try to deal with it. 
Um, or they've heard about Nortel. My God, Nortel is like scarred the Canadian <laughs> investor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it was 15 years ago now. Forget about it. Mm-hmm. Like Markets have come back and that's why you diversify. So you don't get stuck with everything in yeah, Nortel. Exactly. Uh, so then they go and they buy houses and condos because they feel safer. Uh, but that they're not necessarily just because you can look at them and touch them doesn't make them a better place for your money. And I see that especially with young people who are still single. They go and they buy a condo thinking, oh, this is not only going to be a place for me to live, but like an investment. And it's like, well, right. you can just rent a place to live. And then they find themselves not single anymore, usually much quicker than they think. And then they have to sell this tiny condo that barely fits one person because they can't even move the boyfriend or girlfriend in, uh, let alone have kids in it. And then they face these huge fees to try to unload it just one or two or three years later. And it turns out to have been the exact opposite of an investment. They've lost money uh, versus what they would have done if they had just rented a place and invested their savings in the stock market and bond market and whatnot. Uh, so, you know, I, I can make some pretty negative cases for housing because that's my particular uh, particular obsession in some cases. But even beyond that, just looking at these really short-term uh, holding periods, and I think you had a podcast on that a couple months ago, is not going to work for most people. So if you're still single, if you're only going to be in a place for a year or two, really just look to rent, and then you're going to save yourselves a lot of headache coming down the road a couple of years. For sure. Sure. Yeah, I think the big thing is it, it's not that we're saying housing is bad or, or, or it's bad to buy or anything like that. It's just don't make your default answer. Yes, it's always a good time to buy. Yeah. Buying is always a good choice. I should just buy and, like, and that's it. And, and take, yeah. you know, so not even crunching the numbers, not even thinking five years ahead, 10 years ahead, just buying. Right. I think yeah. that's the that's the big thing. Um, you know, when, when you spend less time thinking about that, then, then you are planning for uh, for a vacation, right? That's a pretty big, that's a big flag, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And when you're renting, you only need to find a place that's going to do you for the term of the rental. So exactly. if you want to buy this little tiny micro condo while you're in some job for a year, then it only needs to serve you for a year. But yeah. if you're buying, you need to be thinking at least five, like more like 10 years down the line. Right. And in a lot of cases, what these people are doing is not that. Exactly. Especially if you're young and you're fresh out of school, chances, I mean, the odds now that you're going to stay at the same company for your entire career are so low. Uh, I mean, especially let's say you're living in Toronto, right? And, and and there's there's a lot of different industries there. I mean, chances are you are going to move around. Uh, you know, if you have a good job, uh, you, you might get headhunters calling you, trying to recruit you, things like that. I mean, this is something that can happen that you can't always predict. But but that's the thing is is it's <laughs> it's generally a good idea, I think, to sample. And I kind of mentioned that in the previous podcast. Sample the area first. Yeah. Sample it out by renting. Uh, before you start committing basically your life savings into an area, even though you have no idea whether that's the right uh, area for you, essentially. Yeah, and bringing it back around onto topic, it's that life savings concept is you can't just throw everything into owning a piece of real estate and hope that it's going to be an investment to uh, serve you for retirement. You do need to save on the side. You do need to invest in something else, and figuring that out early on when you're young Mm -hmm. is a great thing to do, and ignoring it when you're young is... You know, one of the mistakes that I see quite often. For sure, so. for sure. Well, what about somebody that um, is maybe in their 40s, maybe 50s? They, they've been investing in a, uh, for a while, uh, ETFs or not, uh, you know, just, just they've already been investing somehow. Um, what kind of, what are some common mistakes that you see some of the more, uh, someone that isn't just brand new to investing? What are some of the mistakes you see them making? So when they're a little bit older, they tend to have a guy. 
And they're <laughs> an expensive guy, I imagine. Yeah. yeah and their yeah. investing guy is a yeah. nice guy. He's pretty uh-huh. friendly on the phone and he meets them and he gets them a coffee when they come. <laughs> and at no point did they actually evaluate him on what they're paying him to do and yeah. you know what he's charging them because these fees are kind of hidden within their mutual funds. Exactly. And then they go and they recommend their guy to all their friends and their friends go, Oh yeah, your guy sounds great. And uh, they don't objectively look at benchmarks. They don't look at the costs. And so they're ending up in uh, plans that are not best for them and they're paying more than they need to be and for the value that they're getting out of that. So what they really need to do is either think about doing it themselves or paying someone for the services that they need rather than finding a nice guy. And that's really hard too is because you can rely on the opinions of your friends for a lot of things to find a good uh, tiler for your bathroom or whatever. Uh, You can usually rely on the recommendations of your friends and your social network. But a lot of the cases, your friends and your social network are not qualified to try to identify good investment advisors. And so that's not a great way to find an investment advisor where people still keep doing it because that's kind of the mode that they're used to thinking in. Another one is getting way too conservative with their investing. Uh, They're thinking, oh, I'm in my 40s, 50s, retirement's coming up soon. I've lived through a couple of stock market crashes and they just sucked. Uh, Again, the Nortel scarring. And they get too conservative and they also get pessimistic about their life expectancy. They see, oh, Canadian life expectancy, 82 years or whatever it is. And they go, I've only got a couple years left. I shouldn't be investing in stocks. But they don't think that from where they're starting, their life expectancy is actually longer than that. And there's a good chance that even if they're in the 50%, 25% who live longer than those various milestones, they could be living out to 95 or 100 So they still have a lot of time horizon ahead of them where they could be investing more aggressively. Uh, And also thinking of cottages in any way as an investment. Uh, I sometimes hear that like, I'm thinking of buying a cottage. It's going to be a great investment. It'll be a lot of fun and a big expense. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, RRSPs. uh, Especially when you get a little bit older and you start having some RSP room and you're trying to really pack away those retirement savings because now it's starting to look like a real thing and you want to get on it. Uh, you throw money into an RSP and then think of the refund as some kind of windfall when really that should be rolled back into investing or back into the RSP or you should be thinking about it differently because that's basically the government's part of your RSP contribution. You're going to have to pay it back when you take the money out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a, not confusing that with a TFSA. You do actually yeah. have to pay taxes on what you are withdrawing from your RRSP in the future. So not uh, not just assuming that that's all your money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be less than what you would normally have to give back if you did it right. But, uh, but, for, but for sure, yeah, I don't yeah. want to make that general assumption. Yeah. Um, no, thanks. That's great. Those are some really, really good tips. <laughs> I like the, uh, the quote unquote, the guy. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he buys me coffee. He's so nice. Uh, well, he, he never, you know, he, pay, he pays for the coffee. You know, wow, he doesn't have to do that. Well, you know, he's making so much money off you that, <laughs> that a, a $2 coffee is pretty negligible to keep you happy, right? So, yeah, no, for, uh, for sure, for sure. And, and yeah, I really like your point about how, um, you know, we, we trust our friends, we trust our family. So if they recommend a guy, we, we kind of assume, oh, well, they've already vetted this person. Let's just, I trust my, you know, whoever. So let's just go with that same person. And then not realizing, well, you know, I love my family, but maybe they're not financial, uh, you know, as financially savvy when it comes to investments 
uh, to be able to make that decision, right? So th despite the best intentions, it's not always the best choice either. Yeah. And especially with not benchmarking, because a lot of people got fed up with the market crash, blamed it on their advisors, even though, to be fair, the advisors couldn't have done anything. Right, right. Uh, switched advisors just as the market was bottoming and then did really well afterwards. And then right, right. Oh, my advisor did that to the new advisor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah, I've been with my advisor since, you know, late 2009 and I've just yeah. had fantastic returns. Exactly. Looking at what Why the market itself has done. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. The market's done even better because it's just been a great couple of years to invest. So Exactly. Whereas if you just bought indexes and add those lower fees, you actually would have been further ahead exactly. than doing yeah. what that invest what that advisor is telling you to buy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um so my next question, we you've already touched on it a little bit when I asked you to to define uh, ETFs more for the beginner investors, but uh, I'll just I'll, I'll still say the question just in case there's anything that that you'd like to add. Um, so basically, in your book, you make a really strong case for investing in broad market indexes. And so for individuals who are just starting off in their investment journey, um, you, you already kind of explained a little bit what that means. Um, is there anything you wanted to add about sort of why is this the best way uh, to invest? Uh, we we talked about fees a bit and, and diversification. I'm not sure if there's anything else you wanted to. To add to that or, or if you pretty much covered it sure well I, I do hesitate a little bit to use the word best because best means different things depending on what you're thinking about so if you're looking at like total returns index funds are never going to be the best solution there's always going to be 10 15 20 percent of the actively managed funds or the active individual investors who manage to beat out the index funds mm -hmm. the issue is you can't pick those in advance so based on the information you have today, choosing index funds, broad market indexes with the lowest possible fees is the best uh, choice you can make based on what you know today. But you have to accept that when the new information comes in next year as to which ones were the winners, your index funds are going to be near the top, but never at the top of that right. list. Right. So that's one thing to accept is that over time, you're going to do well. You're going to be able to meet your goals because of investing like this but you're never going to be able to you know whip out your portfolio statement at the exactly. golf club and be like hey i was the best this year like you're not going to exactly. have bragging rights uh in the short term mm -hmm. uh so anyway by index investing it's like uh broadly diversifying it's like owning a little piece of the entire country's economy or the entire world's economy so as the world does well businesses continue to make money continue to become more efficient and more productive, you're going to get a little piece of that. You're going to do okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're going to control what you can control, which is your costs. You're going to let the market do what it does and just accept those uh, gyrations and those that those random outcomes. Uh, and over time, it's going to work out for you. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's great. Yeah. Then for those that will look at that statement, those reports at the end of the year, and say, "Oh, well." For if only I invested in this mutual fund, I would have done so much better. You know, it 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 beat the 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 markets, right? And, and oh, I should have done that. But then the question, then, then I would say, then there's two questions you have to ask yourself. One is, would you have actually been able to successfully pick that fund yeah. a, a year ago, right? When when you made the decision, would you have been able to pick it? Probably not. And then also, even if you say, yeah, sure, I'll be able to pick it. I was going to pick that one anyway. Okay, fine. But then. Can that fund perform that well consistently is then the other issue. And then from the studies that have been shown over and over again, I mean, obviously a lot of research has been done on this. It's, it, the, it, it's not. It, it doesn't happen where a fund can so consistently beat the market all the time that it always beats the indexes 
um, even after you take into account all the different fees. So it's it's not quite uh, it's not quite that simple. It's kind of the shiny object that you want to get you know you want to get to. Um, but like you said, with the information you have at hand, it's just much easier just to buy the index. And then it just, it's a lot less to worry about as well, right? Because you know the, histor the history of it, right? Um, you know, and yeah, I just, that's kind of one of the reasons that I definitely go with the broad market indexes as well. Yeah, to be fair to the uh, active investing uh, mutual funds and advisors out there, uh, consistency isn't necessarily required. So if you have a couple of great years and a couple of bad years versus the index, you can still come out ahead over five, 10 year, 20 year periods. And there are a couple of funds that do manage to beat. And, you know, they always get brought out. And Berkshire Hathaway is a great example for mm -hmm. beating for years and years and years. It's just you never know when that run is going to stop. And you never know how to get on that train early enough. Like, yeah, we can look back today, even 10 years ago, we could have looked back and yeah, Warren Buffett is a fantastic investor. But trying to actually pick the next Warren Buffett is really hard. So, right. again, it's not something you necessarily want to be getting into. And if you've got the skills to be able to pick that next uh, Warren Buffett or Francis Chu or wherever you want to name, uh, you may have the skills to just be an active investor yourself and just be out picking funds, uh, stocks rather. And if if uh, you don't, then, you know, maybe you shouldn't be thinking that you have that skill to, to pick these guys. Right, right. Because sure. you got to keep in mind, they're salespeople too. Like they have to sell people on their funds to get them in to buy it, and so it's very difficult to distinguish their actual skills from their sales marketing material. Oh, exactly. Yeah, and the kind of the big question I I think of is okay, if if you're talking to that kind of an advisor, how what how much percentage of their time are they spending doing sales and marketing? And, and learning, getting training on sales and training on marketing versus how much time are they actually spending uh, in actually researching, investing, and, and basically becoming better advisors, right? And yeah. I, I think there's there's a lot of cases for sure where actually they're you know they're salespeople essentially, right? And not to completely generalize and stereotype everyone there, but uh, but for sure you do have to be careful, um, especially as a Canadian, just because those fees that they charge are so high here in Canada. Yeah, and that's both for the the, the salespeople that you work with um, individually at, at the retail level where these are the people giving you advice and selling you funds and also within the mutual funds themselves because the mutual funds have to sell themselves to the salespeople. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Hey, uh, can we talk about asset allocation a little bit? Can sure. you maybe define it first just for any sort of beginner investors and then talk about what you recommend in terms of asset allocation for someone that's maybe younger, maybe just out of university, let's say, um, who are now going to be able to start investing um, versus someone that perhaps is, is older, they're looking to retire now. What, 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 are, what, what are your thoughts about asset allocation through the different sort of life stages? Sure. So asset allocation is basically looking at how you're splitting up what you're investing in. Uh, first off, between safe stuff like bonds, GICs, and cash, and more risky stuff, basically stocks. Uh, and then within some of those, like within stocks, you're looking at how you're splitting it up between Canadian stocks, U.S. stocks, and the rest of the world. And then you can even find split it even more. You can be looking at emerging markets versus developed markets, uh, one country versus another, etc. So I uh, generally think that people should be looking at asset allocation on just a very high level. If you're looking at more than four or five asset classes, you're probably trying to cut it too fine. So you want to have, first off, your main split between your... Uh, safe stuff and your risky stuff and then within your risky stuff how are you splitting that up so I figure if you just split it up evenly that's a very easy thing to stick to 
there isn't really exact science on how precise to be here. Uh, if you were looking globally, Canada is about 4%-ish of the world economy. And on the other side, we live here. So we want to have a bit of a home country bias to invest more than just 4% of our funds into Canadian uh, companies, Canadian stocks. So we need some sort of compromise between what some people are doing, which is investing everything in Canada and investing just that 2 to 4% or so of what we make up as the share of the world economy. And I figure 33% of your risky stuff is kind of a decent enough rule of thumb to get you close uh, because there isn't exact formulas to say, oh, it should be 23.46% of right. whatever because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. Um, so then I just say split it up equally, Canadian, U.S., international, you're done on the risky stuff. Then the big decision is between your safe stuff and your risky stuff. If you're young, a great rule of thumb to get you started is uh, your age less 10, uh, put that into the safe stuff. So if I'm 35, I take off 10, that gets me 25. So I'm going to put 25% into safe stuff as my starting point. And then I can adjust that based on my own evaluation of my life, my own evaluation of my ability to take risk, and my own evaluation of my willingness to take risk. So you know, for someone young, they should have pretty high allocation to stocks for what they're going to be putting away for the long term, not for what you need to repair your car next year, but for the long term, uh, because you've got time for these stocks to recover. Stocks do go up, they do go down, market crashes do happen, but they tend to work themselves out over the course of a decade or so. And you've got many decades ahead of you if you're young, if you're in your 20s, 30s, You've got many decades before you hit retirement in your 60s and even more before you die in your 90s, most likely. That's great. And then what about somebody that is older? Let's say they're, they're looking to retire soon, maybe within the next few years. What are what are your thoughts about their, their asset allocation at that stage of their life? So if we follow that same rule of thumb, they're going to have to be a little bit more safe because they don't have quite as much time ahead of them before they might start needing this money and they need to be able to ride through this so their willingness to take on that risk because now retirement's looking like a real thing and they're going oh my god that's my boat that's just evaporated in the stock market right, crash right. Um, <laughs> so they need yeah. to have that to be able to weather the weather the ups and downs as well so mm -hmm. they start to increase it at a certain point when you start getting close especially within about 10 years of retirement i think it's really valuable to go to a planner to get some expert advice tailored more specifically to you. When you're younger, it doesn't matter as much because mm -hmm. there's so much uncertainty about what's going to happen in the future right. that, you, like again, you can't dice it up anymore <laughs> exactly than a, some simple rule of thumb. So you just kind of get started when you're young and just go off and try to stick approximately to your plan and then you can adjust as you get older. Now, when you're already in your 50s, you don't have as much room to adjust, so now you need to be a little bit more precise in your planning, have a bit better idea of what's going to happen. And again, you're still at the mercy of what the markets are going to do, but uh, you try to prepare as best you can. And so at that point, it might make sense to pay for a planner because now they can provide some valuable input into your plan. And rather than just like this massive range of possibilities, right. it's going to start narrowing down a little bit so then they can uh, provide some input to help you with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember I went to an event uh, not too long ago. They had one of the the top sort of pension experts in the country, and he and he was asked about kind of how he did it, how he planned it all out. So he so he, so this is kind of you know the the elite when it comes to being able to to determine and and create these models and a spreadsheet and be able to predict all these things. And he said that basically, yeah, in the beginning he actually he had this really 
comprehensive spreadsheet, modeled everything out so you knew exactly what to do. But then what he found out, <laughs> what he found after as years went on, is that none of the things actually came true because <laughs> because it's impossible to predict decades in advance what's going to happen, right? Like for example, he used interest rates as an example, right? There's no way decades ago he would have predicted that the interest rates would be as low as they are now, for instance, right? So that changed things drastically, right? And and a few other things. So it's just really interesting to hear sort of the top guys, you know, who who does this for a living, basically saying, look, when you're young. You really can't predict everything, uh, and so the, you know, so so don't be so consumed with all those sort of details. Just start investing, uh, make it a little bit more aggressive since you do have that time on your side, uh, and basically start start compounding and, and start getting those returns, um, as opposed to trying to sort of come up with the most amazing Excel spreadsheet that's <laughs> that's not going to be accurate no matter how how smart you are, basically, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that was interesting. Um, yeah, I had a question about uh, about bonds. So, I mean, you're, you're talking about risk and about asset allocation. And, of course, basically with bonds, the big advantage there is that they, they can lower the volatility of your entire portfolio. And so uh, a lot of suggestion is made, okay, well, you should have a certain percentage of bonds so that your, you know, your whole portfolio doesn't fluctuate as much, especially during a market crash, let's say. Uh, right? So we hear that a lot. But what if um, you're someone that's still, let's say, on the young side and we say, okay, well, I'm, I'm okay with this, with this volatility. So, so if we have another 2008 happen uh, and my, you know, my, uh, my holdings drop by 40%, I'm I'm okay with that. I'm not gonna panic sell. I'm gonna hold on to it because I'm conf because I'm holding this basically for the long term. I'm holding this for you know at least another twenty years, and I feel I'll be able to recover. What what do you have to say about that sort of strategy? So this is you know more for people that are saying okay, well I just I'm young. I want to go hundred percent equities. I want to maximize the return just because uh, the equities do tend to outperform bonds over the long term. So the biggest issue with that is that it's extremely easy to overestimate your ability to sit through those market crashes, your own mm -hmm. risk tolerance. Uh, when you're young, you haven't lived through many of these things, right. uh, and you haven't experienced looking at everything that you've worked for for so many years just poof, go away or half of it go away for a little time while markets go down. And it's really emotionally riling, and it takes a long time. Like, you look on a chart, and you're like, oh, okay, 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. Right, right, right. And you're like, oh, it's just one year. So dip, and then it starts coming back up. It's just a year, right. whatever. I can live through that. But when you're living through that year or two or three, that's a long time to have to mm -hmm. keep up that, that faith that the market's going to recover, to keep up your risk tolerance and not sell out and you're doing that in the face of all this doom and gloom news because as soon as the market starts crashing the newspapers jump on it the tv right. stations jump on it and so you're constantly hearing about how it's going to go lower people are making predictions people are saying i told you so this is a you know deadly trap and a bubble and a whatnot and whatnot mm -hmm. and you have to listen through all that and stick to your plan so if you can do it then go, go ahead uh, i myself have a higher uh, allocation to stocks than that simple age minus 10 rule would suggest because I've lived through it because I know I can um, and because I'm willing to take that risk but you know you have to really know yourself to be able to do it and unfortunately until you've actually lived through it at least once it's mm -hmm. you can't really know gotcha so okay so if we're looking at it completely from a 
just just dollars and cents perspective no you know let's assume I'm, we're robots right that person's a robot there, there's pen excelling is not an option it, it, it has no emotion has no impact so so that individual that robot would be <laughs> uh would actually get re better returns if they just let's say went 100 percent equities and just wrote it out over the long term is that would that be fair to say from what you've seen most likely there's always that really small tail risk that equities don't perform very well for a really long time right um we don't have a lot of history of that happening over you know several hundred markets of capital several hundred years of capitalist markets but that's not saying that it can't ever happen right so right. that's also part of why you might want to invest in bonds just to get at least that little bit of one percent two percent return on some mm -hmm. of what you're investing in but yeah for the most part you're most likely going to make more money by investing 100% in equities. So as long as you can write out that volatility, then you know, great, go ahead. It's just you have to mm -hmm. really know yourself, really know that you can be that robotic and actually do it. Exactly. You know, there's a great quote, and I wish I knew who to attribute it to, is that in retirement, all you're going to care about is whether or not you're eating cat food, not how volatile the ride was getting there. But you have to actually <laughs> right. ride that roller coaster to get there. Right. So if you're not going to yeah. be able to take those uh, market G-forces, as it were, then you mm -hmm. need to... to Put some more into safe stuff so that you can ride it out. Mm -hmm. Give yourself that buffer. That's great advice. Yeah. So I guess in, in more recent time, if, if you haven't invested during the 2008 or if you haven't invested before 2008 and then felt what that did, does to you uh, when, when the drop happens, then it's, I guess it's probably fair to say that you don't really know that kind of, that person doesn't really know their, their tolerance to be able to not panic sell. And, and so the, those kind of individuals, if you haven't gone through that cycle, should be really careful uh, when going with an all equity portfolio and should instead say, OK, maybe put a little bit uh, into something safer like bonds just to uh, just because you don't know, because uh, because you're right, it, it's hard to <laughs> hard to predict how you will react when there's a 40 percent drop, let's say, or, or a 50 percent drop. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Well, I hope you enjoyed part one of the interview with John. Remember, you can easily enter the draw to win his book for free. Just go to buildwealthcanada.ca, sign up for the free newsletter so you'll know when new episodes come out, and send me an email with one question that you'd like answered on future episodes, whether it's about investing, real estate, budgeting, earning money on the side, whatever you want to know, personal finance related, just let me know what you'd like answered in a future episode, and you'll automatically be entered into a draw to win John's book. All right, so you can also check out buildwealthcanada.ca slash 11, just the number 11, to see the show notes for this episode. And you can actually sign up there as well to enter the draw. And stay tuned for part two of the interview with John. All right, take care. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.